Good morning. Oh, let's try that one more time. Good morning. All right. Hey, my name is Gus Hernandez, and I'm one of the pastors here at Reality Church. want to encourage you to continue to pray for Pastor Carlos. He's out of town this weekend. He's preaching at one of our partner churches in Houston, Texas. And funny enough, he's having to preach all three services in Spanish, which is something I know he was a little bit nervous about. He's like, man, I don't think I've preached the full message in Spanish in quite some time. But we're encouraged for this opportunity that he has, and we're excited for that great church, and we thank them for their love and their support. Now, we are wrapping up our sermon series called A Better Story. And I don't know about you, but for me, I love a good story. Anybody here love a good story? Man, what do you think makes for a good story? Like when you think through, man, some of your favorite stories, whether it was an amazing book you read, maybe it was a movie or a multi-episode show that you watch, like what makes for a good story? Audience participation. A good ending? Oh, my goodness. There have been so many great, like, shows I'll watch, and then you get to the season finale, and you're like, wah, wah. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Like, so much potential. What else makes for a good story? Plot twist. Plot twist. I love that. Yeah, that's so good. What else? The characters, right? Is there actual character development? I'll tell you one of the things that I absolutely love in storytelling is when a, a writer is able to take some of these, like, what appears to be like some little small details from the past. And then as you fast forward into the story, they bring back and they recall your mind and your attention to details from the past. And they start to connect the dots of how they impact the story in the present. To me, I love that kind of creativity and that the ability to connect dots all over the place to bring it home to the plot. And in essence, that's what we're going to see today in the passage of Scripture. We're going to be in Acts 13 And in this setting, we get to hear basically the Apostle Paul's first publicly recorded sermon in the book of Acts. He has been proclaiming and sharing, but this is the first time we get to see one of his sermons kind of summarized for us. And what he's going to be doing in this passage is something very similar. He's going to start to connect the dots for his audience, and he's going to show them stuff from the past and from their history, and he's going to point them to the Old Testament, and then he's going to fast forward and show them how all these beautiful truths from the past impact the present, and he points them to how they all finally find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And as we've been studying this sermon series, we've been going through the book of Acts And we've been kind of summarizing this theme that like our story is redefined by the story of Jesus. And this morning, I always love to provide you with some direction, like where are we headed in the message? And I hope that you're taking notes. I want to encourage you to take notes. I want you to write down this simple phrase. Here is where we're going. Over the next few minutes, as we study Acts 13, here's the big idea. Here's the big picture. And it's simply this, that our story finds ultimate purpose in the story of Jesus. I'm going to say it again. Our story finds ultimate purpose in the story of Jesus. Another way of saying this is that our story finds our ultimate purpose in God's big story of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's pick up in the passage. And I want to warn you, this is a lengthy passage. We're going to take it in different chunks. And so we're going to be like reading through part of Paul's teaching and how he's connecting the dots. We'll pause, we'll explain some spots, we'll come back to the story, and we're going to keep working our way through this passage. So we're going to pick up in verse 13, and it's going to kind of set the stage for Paul's sermon. And this is what verse 13 says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John Mark left them and he went back to Jerusalem. Verse 14, 
they continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian, Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. This was customary for people in the Jewish synagogues. If they knew that there was a rabbi or a trained speaker traveling through the area, they would extend an invitation with Paul's heritage as a former Pharisee trained by one of the great teachers in their culture. You can imagine they were probably honored to have Paul in this, and so they give him an opportunity to say something if he wants to say something. And this is where Paul captures this opportunity to declare such a powerful truth to the people there in that Jewish synagogue. Look at verse 16. So Paul stood up, and he motioned with his hands, and he said, Fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and he led them out with a mighty army, with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. He's reminding them of their history and their heritage as Israelites. He's like, guys, we were slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And then when God rescues us, we had to wander for 40 years in the desert because of our rebellion and our stubbornness. But then eventually, God led us to the promised land. And over the course of 10 years, you see them settle into this new land. So he's reminding them of all this. Then from there, he says, and then God gave them judges until he raised up Samuel the prophet. Then the people started to ask for a king. So then God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After removing him, this is important, he raised up David as their king, and he testified this about him. What a powerful phrase to see here in the text. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out my will. And this is where the story starts to connect some dots for the listeners. Look at verse 23. And it's from this man's descendants, as God promised, that God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John the Baptist had previously been proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And now as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think that I am? I'm not the one, but the one who is coming after me, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. What we see here is Paul is giving a summary. He's reminding people of God's work throughout history. God's sovereignty, God is orchestrating something powerful and beautiful, and he's going to help this audience connect the dots and say, all of this that God has been working throughout history is culminating, is being fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. And what you see here is he starts to remind them of like, this is your journey, this is what you're doing, but ultimately he's highlighting the importance that God is a God who keeps his promises. We're going to look at three main truths in the passage today, and here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write down this important principle, the importance of remembering the promises of God, the importance of remembering the promises of God. As you spend time reading the scriptures, as you spend time 
going through the different pages, what you will come to see is that God is a God who keeps his promises. Over and over and over again in history, recorded for us, you see that God says something, God accomplishes it. He says he's going to do something, he comes through. And that's important for us, and that's what the Apostle Paul is using to connect with his audience. He's reminding them, look, this God that you worship, he is a God who keeps his promises. And guess what? He's about to keep the biggest promise of all, the promise to send a future Savior, the promise that he gave our ancestors for a deliverer, a Messiah, an anointed king. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus. That's powerful. And he reminds the people there that God had chosen Israel to be a light to the nations. And he reminds them of their history that he says, look, God blessed us as a people in order that we would then become a blessing to all nations because through Israel comes the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he would have been dropping these different clues that would have caused them to go back and think of the story that they grew up hearing. Now, this is really important for us because the Apostle Paul, as you study his life and ministry in the New Testament, you'll see that he takes different approaches when he's sharing with different people. And I think that's important for us as we think through how to have a good gospel conversation in our culture, in our setting. The Apostle Paul in this setting knew that he was in a synagogue. What's a synagogue? What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a Jewish place of worship. They would have gathered around. They would have read the Torah and the prophets. And then afterwards, a rabbi would get up and explain what they just read and then give them an application from what they heard and read. Very similar to what we do in preaching today, in exposition. We read the scriptures, we expound, we exposit, we help draw out the meaning from the text, and then we apply it to our hearts and our minds, right? So he knows he's in a Jewish setting. The people there have heard about the God of the Old Testament. They understood the law. They understood the prophets. And so he's approaching their background and their context in a particular way. You see later that Paul will go into some of the Greek cities and take a different approach. Now, I want you to hear this. His gospel message never changes, but his methods and tactics do to adjust for the people that he's spending time with. I'll give you an example. If I'm having a spiritual conversation, I'm going to approach the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, a certain way if I'm dealing with someone who grew up around church, maybe someone who even grew up Catholic, versus a friend of mine who's Muslim. Or a friend of mine who claims to be a nun, like he has no religious background or setting. Like you're going to approach the conversation differently. What Paul is doing in this setting is showing us how he was able to engage people that grew up with a a familiarity about God and knew about God's future promises, but hadn't connected all the dots yet. There are many people that attend church every single week who have been exposed to the teachings of Scripture consistently And yet they still have not placed all those dots and connected them to understand the significance of Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 23. He does something important. He goes now to this king that many of them would have known. They've read the stories of King David in 1 and 2 Samuel. And he reminds them of a promise that God made David. It says, from this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus It's interesting, like two of our Gospels start with a family history, and it shows the lineage of Jesus being traced back to King David to show Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. 
And he starts to connect these dots. And he's reminding them, not only is this a beautiful thing, he reminds them of another thing that happened recently. He goes from talking about King David, and he brings it to a modern-day prophet they would have heard about named John the Baptist. In fact, John was proclaiming such a powerful message that as he was sharing, as he was teaching, people started to approach John like, hey, are you the one we're supposed to be waiting for? Are you the one that we're looking for? And John had to tell the people, that's not me. You're looking for the wrong person. Like, and this was amazing. John the Baptist, the way he describes it, he's like, the person that comes after me is the one that you're waiting for. And he is so different than me. He is so wholly other than me that I don't even consider myself worthy to untie his sandals. I mean, think about it. That's such a, t- a small task. You're like, man, anyone can like take off your shoes. Like you see that as like the most common form of serving somebody back in that day. And he's like, this future savior is so special that I don't even consider myself worthy to untie his sandals. And he reminds them, look, I'm not the one you're looking for, but the one you're looking for comes right after me. And then we have this beautiful declaration from John the Baptist found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. And look at this. This is what John the Baptist says. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declares, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we have a summary here, so we have like the Cliff Notes version of Paul's sermon, but you got to think, when he's making the pivot from King David and the promise of his lineage leading to the Messiah, and then he mentions a modern-day prophet they would have heard about, that he's explaining that this prophet that some people thought was the Messiah clearly told the people around him, it's not me, but I'm paving the way for someone who's coming. Guess what? That was also an Old Testament prophecy, that God would send someone ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. And John then makes that bold statement that says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, remembering the promises of God leads us to have to reflect on the powerful story of Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. This leads us to the second truth in this passage, the importance of reflecting on the story of Jesus. Look there at verse 26. So now Paul continues his message. He says, Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, They have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Just pause for a minute. He's here in a town that, if you were looking at a map today, is modern-day Turkey. And he's delivering this message. And he's reminding them of yet another prophecy that was fulfilled, that the Messiah would come to his own people, and his own people would reject him and condemn him. And he's telling them, look, the message, the hope that God promised is finally here in the person of Jesus. And his own people rejected him. And went further than just rejected him, condemned him, and had him executed. Again, remind them, they missed all the clues, all the dots from the past. He says it right here. Even though they gather every Sabbath, and they open up the Torah, and they open up the prophets, and they read about this future promise that God made to them, they missed all 
the clues that pointed to Jesus being the fulfillment of all of God's promises. They missed it. Let's look back at what it says. Look at verse 28. And though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate, the Roman official, to have him killed. When they carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Look at verse 32. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Look at this promise to David. And to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep or died, was buried with his fathers and decayed. Don't miss this. But the one God raised up did not decay. Did not decay. This is what sets Jesus apart from everyone else. He did not stay in the tomb. This was something prophesied in the Old Testament and brought to fulfillment through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God fulfilled his very promises by sending Jesus and raising him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is who he said he was. He was not just a normal man but truly proved that he was God because he was able to overcome the one thing you and I fear, the one thing you and I cannot avoid, the one thing every single one of us here has to come to grips with. At some point in time, we all will die. It is part of the curse. It is part of sin. We are all beings that are mortal. And in Jesus, God provides us with hope that he can undo the curse of sin. One of the amazing things about the prophecies that Paul is sprinkling in as he's connecting dots, if you were to do a deep dive, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, one scholar was able to highlight there's about 457, 458 verses that can be directly linked to different activities and things that Jesus Christ fulfilled and accomplished throughout his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the people who had spent their lives devoted to reading the Old Testament missed it. And the Apostle Paul is trying to remind his audience, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that God has been promising our ancestors for generations. They came to be. He brought them to fulfillment through Jesus Christ. And here are all the dots and how they connect. And he's helping lead it home. He's driving it. But I don't want you to miss this because this is beautiful and it becomes part of our Christian confession. The Apostle Paul does something in this passage that he later goes on to reemphasize in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember I told you his methodology will change, but the core message never changes. And he, here's a short like summary of how Paul describes the good news in four simple bullet points. Like this is the gospel of Jesus. He says, first, Jesus was crucified. Jesus died a death he didn't deserve, and he died a death that we deserved. 
The second is that he was buried in a tomb. And then he reminds his audience that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I love verse, the fourth one. Jesus was seen by many witnesses. Like this has got to cause you to reflect a little bit. Because as we studied earlier in our series, Acts chapter 1 tells us there were about 120 people in the movement of Jesus at the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. You just stop for a moment. 120 people gathered around in Jerusalem. And you and I are sitting here 2,000 years later talking about Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. Something had to happen for a scared group of 120 people that just saw their fearless leader executed publicly in front of the whole city to boldly start proclaiming the message of Jesus, even to go up against a very hostile Roman empire that eventually outlaws Christianity to the point of killing you for professing faith, what would cause 120 people to live in such a radical manner to spread the gospel that historians say within the first few hundred years, the Christian movement expands from 120 into the millions? What would cause a band of people to do that? The answer's been in Scripture. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15. It's found here in Acts 13. The resurrected Jesus was seen by several witnesses who saw he did what he said he would do. Jesus said he would conquer sin and death. Jesus conquered the grave. And he visited his followers and he showed them, look, I told you I was going to do this. Go and tell the world about me. And those people were able to stare death in the face, were able to stare persecution in the face because they were convinced and transformed by the message of Jesus Christ, by the person of Jesus Christ. The call to follow Jesus isn't some like blind faith not backed by evidence. It's something they saw happen. And they were so convinced by this powerful message that they devoted their lives to sharing the good news with those around them. Here's what I love about what God does here is this is basically the content of our missionary preaching. Like if we're going to have a missionary encounter with our city, if we're going to be able to declare the good news with the city of Miami and to the ends of the earth, this is at the very core of what we're proclaiming. That God didn't leave us in our brokenness, that God didn't leave us in our sin, but that God did something. He provided a solution to our sin problem, and he does it through Jesus Christ. He promised to save us from our sin. And the story of Jesus has major implications for your life and for my life. It has major implications. It demands a response from each of us. And this leads us to our third truth, the importance of responding to the story of Jesus. The importance of responding to the story of Jesus. Look back at Acts 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Look at verse 39, powerful. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Wow. He's reminding, look, a lot of you have grown up in a system. You know a lot of rules. You know a lot of history. You know a lot about our ancestors. But Jesus Christ finally came to do what you were not able to do on your own strength and abilities. Like no amount of keeping any set of rules could ever earn enough 
of God's favor in your life. He's debunking the whole holy scales in the sky syndrome. Like if I could just do enough good, if I could just read enough of the scriptures, it'll outweigh all the bad things that I've done and I'll be justified. And he's like, no, no, no. Look back at the scriptures. Everyone who believes in Jesus is justified through Jesus. You could not be justified through the law of Moses. Look at verse 40. So beware, what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Then he quotes this passage. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. God has kept his promise to provide salvation for his people. The gospel had finally arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And the signature of that promise is resting in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's very promise. But what did this announcement have to do with this crowd? A couple things that we notice is he pointed straight to the thing he wants them to hear. Look back at the beginning. Brothers and sisters, through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. The first thing he's reminding them is that it means that forgiveness of sins is available. Like every single one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we struggle. We see brokenness. None of us here in this room is immune to sin or the effects of sin. In fact, I'll tell you this, in all my spiritual conversations I've had with people, I have not had one person with all integrity and honesty look at me and say, no, I think I am absolutely perfect. I have never made one mistake in my entire life, and I think we live in a world that's constantly progressing. I think if any single one of us here is being brutally honest, if you practice radical candor with yourself, you can find something that you've done in life that has brought guilt and shame. Something that you've struggled with, maybe something you currently struggle with. And I don't think there's a single person, in light of everything that we've seen in the news in the past just week, can try to deny that we don't see brokenness in the world around us. I mean, the amount of loss of life that is occurring right now is a tragedy. And as a reminder that we live in a fallen, broken world. But there's hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And there is good news. In the midst of all the bad news, that God doesn't leave us in our state of brokenness, but that God does something powerful. But what does this announcement mean for this crowd? He reminds them of a couple truths. One is that we need forgiveness for sins. That assumes that we have sin. Look at a passage, Romans 3.23, very simple verse. A lot of us know this, right? For all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. It's a simple reminder. There's not a single person that has not committed a sin that separates us from a holy and righteous God. In fact, here's another verse. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the verse doesn't end there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life only comes through Jesus, but is being offered to you. It was being offered to the people listening to the Apostle Paul, and he's reminding them of this truth. But look at the warning in verse 40. Paul gives a very strong warning to the audience. He says, man, I don't want you to be like what the prophecies declare will happen to some who will hear the good news and walk away rejecting it, not doing anything with it. 
And he's telling the people in that room, you have a choice. You've been presented with God's promise that forgiveness of sins is available to you. It doesn't matter what you've done in life. doesn't matter what sins you've committed. doesn't matter the amount of guilt and the shame that you constantly live under. The forgiveness of sins is being offered to you through Jesus. Think about how beautiful this is to be justified. It's being offered to you. Don't reject it. Don't walk away unchanged. Notice what that phrase ends with, that some will never believe even if someone were to explain it. Most of the times, it's not an intellectual battle. It's a heart issue. A lot of us tend to harden our hearts toward God. And we'll hear these truths and we'll be exposed to these things and And there's a side, like, even as we sit there and we talk through all the different dynamics of the good news of Jesus and what that means for you, at the core, it is your heart balking at God. And what Paul is pleading with this audience is don't be like those who are prophesied that will walk away unchanged from the message. Look, I don't know where all of you are on your spiritual journey, but I do want to challenge you the same way the Apostle Paul challenged this audience. Don't walk away from the message of Jesus being offered to you today, that Jesus can rescue you and save you from your brokenness and your sin, that Jesus does extend forgiveness to you. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. No one is ever beyond the reach of God's grace. And he is able to overcome anything that you've done. And he's offering you forgiveness. He's offering you salvation. But here's what I love about what Paul's doing. Man, I love this. Paul is showing us what faithful preaching is. Faithful preaching demands a response. Preaching is more than just standing up and teaching good content and making good points. Don't miss this. Preaching is a passionate plea for people to respond to God's word. Like it's exposing the truth of God's word in a way that helps you see and understand it and then helps you realize, I got to do something with that. Preaching demands a response, and that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. They gave him a chance to stand up and share at at the synagogue, He shares, but he doesn't just say, hey, I just got some cool facts for you. I hope this will encourage you on your journey. I'm going to tell you some truths, and I'm out. No. No, don't miss it. 40, he he brings it home. He says, look, I'm delivering this good news that has finally come to our ancestors through Jesus. And I'm now sharing it with you. I'm connecting the dots for you. But don't walk away without making a decision for Jesus. This is not just good information. Like, well, that was cool. That was helpful. No. This demands a response. What are you going to do with this? And then it still begs the question, Paul, why why does this matter? Like, why does it matter? Because everyone who believes is justified through Christ. To be justified, that's a beautiful word. It means to be declared righteous. Another way of describing it is to be in right standing with God. As we were assessing earlier, I'm sure in that message, you started to reflect on some of the things that you've done in life, and I'm sure you came across some memories of some things that caused deep pain and sorrow. And to think about what Jesus is offering through salvation is he is saying, you give me all of that unrighteousness, And because of my sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, the one who lived a sinless, perfect life, goes to the cross, dies the death he doesn't deserve, takes your place on that cross. And the greatest exchange that has ever occurred happens the moment you repent and believe. 
that he takes all of your unrighteousness and he gives you his righteousness. And that for the person who is here, who has responded to the message of Jesus with repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change in direction and professes faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to that person, when God sees you, he does not see your past mistakes and sins and struggles. He doesn't see you wallowing in your guilt and shame. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That the righteousness of Jesus is now applied to your account. That is amazing. And that is what God is offering every single one of you here. And it doesn't matter what you've done. Because I'm telling you, I've had so many conversations with people that say, God will not save me, doesn't want me. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. God loves you. And he is extending the message of forgiveness to every single one of you that is hearing this message today. But at the end of the day, what's your response? What are you going to do with this good news? As we close, I want to help kind of connect some dots. Because I believe understanding God's work in history helps us interpret what's happening today in our life and in our culture. It helps us to recognize what God is up to in the world and what we're working towards together as we continue to see the kingdom of God at work here, now, and moving forward. And here's a word I want to introduce to you guys. Ready? Write this word down, meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. So here's a simple way to describe that. A meta-narrative is a grand story. It's kind of like an overarching story that helps give context and meaning and purpose to all of life. And I want to show a slide that's going to help you with a visual. It's a help kind of bring this whole series together to help kind of connect all the dots. And on the right side of the screen, you're going to see four words that kind of help us see the major movements of God's story. And there's a lot of stuff happening in between those things. We're going to cover the overview, right? It starts off with creation. In Genesis, we see that God is a powerful God that sets everything in motion and creates everything. But then in creation, we see that man, humanity, is the pinnacle of God's creation. Everything else he speaks into existence, humanity he forms with his very hands, and he breathes the breath of life into humanity. And he uses a very unique phrase. He makes men and women in his image. We're all image bearers. Now think about this. To be an image bearer of God, that means every single human being was created to represent and reflect our creator. We're designed to reflect him to each other, and we are designed to represent him to each other. But then we see the second word. After creation, we see the fall. In Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve sin against God, therefore introducing sin and this curse upon human Humanity across all of creation, and one of the authors I love reading, Michael Goheen, he says it this way, sin has a very way of staining the very fabric of creation, and its ripple effects are felt. And that's what we see today. Because of this that we see in Genesis and because of the fall, we live in a fallen world. There is disease, there's sickness, there's brokenness, there's sin, right? There's hate. There's all these different things that we see as a result of humanity rebelling against God, their creator, and introducing sin, and by sin, therefore, a curse. But here's the good news. God doesn't leave us in that state of brokenness. In fact, the author of the story decides to do something radical, and the author enters into his very own story. And God the Son takes on the form of man, born of a virgin, lives 
like one of us, suffers like one of us, and even experiences death like one of us. But here's the difference. He didn't deserve death. Here's another difference. He didn't stay dead. He defeats death, therefore proving that Jesus is truly God. And since he's able to defeat death, guess what? He's able to defeat sin, the curse that leads to death, and therefore offers redemption to all of us who hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And now we live in this gap between redemption and that future restoration. And this is where you and I are called to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, experiencing the beautiful redemption that he's offering us, and then looking with hope for the restoration that Jesus promises. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ will come back and gather all of his people together, and he will bring final restoration and restore everything back to its intended, perfect, created order. It says it will culminate with the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And all of this, all of this is made possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection. This is the good news. This is the message. This is the better story. Our story finds our ultimate purpose within God's big story of salvation. Now, we all know this. We live in a world that constantly pits to us different narratives, different versions of the good life that exists out there. And what the Apostle Paul was trying to urge his audience is there's only one good life, and that life is found in Jesus Christ. But it's up to you. How do you respond to that? The words we see on the left side of your screen are four words that I kind of use to help guide me through having a spiritual conversation with people. They kind of coincide with God's big story that you see on the right side, But they're like simple words for me to be able to share what I believe about Jesus and the significance of that with other people. So I want to encourage you to write those words down. They serve as a simple outline to follow as you're having conversation. I always like to start off with God. I believe there's a God that exists. I believe he's a God that didn't stay hidden. He's not a God that stays in the background. He's a God that chose to reveal himself to us. A couple special ways he did that, he reveals himself to us through his word And then ultimately, we see that the word becomes flesh in John chapter 1, and we see Jesus enters into creation, and God reveals himself physically to his creation to provide us with salvation, right? So we see that there is a God. I talk about humanity and the role that we're supposed to play and how God created us in his image, but how we rebelled against God, introducing sin. I talk about the consequences of sin, and then I introduce the solution to our sin problem, which is Jesus Christ. And I get to share the good news of Jesus, that he died on the cross in our place. And that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again from the dead. That several witnesses saw him alive, proclaiming the good news that he came to usher in. But then notice the last word. There's got to be a response. As you proclaim the good news of Jesus, if you're here today and you're hearing it, maybe for the first time, I want you to know this. God wants you to respond to this message. It's just not good information like, oh, that's... That's cool. No, it has major implications for your life. And the response we see in Scripture is twofold, repentance and faith. To have a change of heart, change of mind that gets you to recognize you are not the captain of your own ship, that you are a human being accountable to a holy and righteous God. When you finally come to grips that you have sinned against this holy, righteous God, and you finally understand that this God 
extends to you forgiveness. This God extends to you salvation through Jesus Christ. And the second part of response is faith. That you believe that Jesus Christ can rescue you, that Jesus Christ can save you. And that, my friends, is the better story. That in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our brokenness, God is offering to each and every one of us forgiveness and salvation that leads to eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord.